Welcome to The Wayne Nicholson Show, where our guests share their fascinating stories. If you have any questions or would like to DM us, we would love to hear from you. We also have a YouTube channel and a Facebook page. Claire Leach is our guest today on the podcast. She's a DP, camera operator, and recently a director. She's worked on countless TV commercials, TV series, and documentaries. She's worked a lot with the Indigenous communities in the regional parts of Australia, and we discussed the positives and negatives of working in such an industry. But this story is also how when Claire fostered and adopted a very sick dog, she didn't realise how much this was going to change her life forever. This episode is brought to you by Egypt Fun Tours. Now, I always said if Indiana Jones was to take a tour throughout Egypt, then Egypt Fun Tours would be the company he would book through. I can vouch personally having booked this company when traveling to Egypt in 2019. If you are looking for a professionally guided service, which is knowledgeable, fun, and sometimes off the beaten track, then you can't beat Egypt Fun Tours. You see, my wife and I went with the private tour, which was personalized to our own interests and needs, which you can do with Egypt Fun Tours. We traveled from the south, visiting beautiful Abu Simbel, right up to the magical Alexandria. We got to spend alone time, would you believe, in the King's Chamber of the Great Pyramid, as well as camping with the Bedouins in the White Desert. We learned how to read hieroglyphs, and we visited the beautiful temples of Abydos and Dendera which sometimes is not included on tours. So for more information on Egypt Fun Tours, check out their Facebook page, Egypt Fun Tours, or their website, egyptfuntours.com. This episode is also brought to you by Delhi's Continental. From just one pop-up and one sandwich, their reputation spread quickly, selling out whatever they prepared in 20 minutes. Boasting their Continental rolls are the best in Australia with every ingredient fresh and made in-house. Now, within months, these two owners, Stead McCluder and Aldo Putsu, had already graced the pages of magazines, websites, and newspapers. Rumors are now stirring that this could be big. If you are interested in what all the fuss is about, and you are lucky enough to live in Perth, Western Australia, why not head down to Delhi's Continental, number 2 861 Beaufort Street, Inglewood, with their grand opening set to be this summer 2021. For more information, you can check out their Instagram and Facebook page, Delhi's Continental. Claire Leach, <laughs> second take. How are you doing? Yeah, good. How are you going? It's only taken me a couple of years to get you on the podcast. I don't know why. The people that I wanted on the most have just been probably the busiest. It took Fern a year yeah. to come on. Thank God she did. Yeah. But you, I've been wanting you on for like three years, two years now, you know, and you've had this amazing freelance career which i know quite a lot of but in the last five to nine years yeah i don't really know the jobs you've been on so uh you're a camera you work with camera you've been freelancing for 20 years now yeah you're doing you're getting into directing now which is finally <laughs> which is great and you also have been executive producer <laughs> <laughs> Thanks, Wayne. Yeah. <laughs> so since I've seen you last, what are some of the interesting jobs that you've been on? And you know, your most interesting story mm -hmm. that I want to talk about is your dog. <laughs> My saviour. Your saviour and your dog's saviour, Oompa, yeah. who's become a celebrity. 
mind you, in Perth. Yeah, yeah. So she start is. with some of the jobs first. Uh, well, I actually I'm going to start with with Umpa because the, the, she kind of was the catalyst for me to change a lot of the direction of where I was going. Yeah. Um, beforehand, I was doing a lot of sort of TV commercial work and. I don't know. I think I'd burnt out, to be honest. I think, you know, um, the thing about the film industry is when you're working in a job that is your passion um, and that is your dream, you suddenly realise that it's very easy for it to become your life. And then you suddenly realise after years and years and years that you are available for work 24-7. And then you go, oh, my life comes after that. And I had gotten to a point where it was like, I think I need something more in my life. I need responsibility outside of myself because I was by myself and I wasn't treating myself very nicely. Because you had no balance? No balance. I was actually um, working. I had uh, an office from home. Actually, it was more than an office. It was uh, we were doing a lot of TV commercial casting from our house, so it was. <laughs> so you couldn't escape. Couldn't escape. Um, I'd wake up in the morning, and it would be like, "Oh, hey, I'm at work." And so I ended up going. I think I need a dog. I don't. I don't have time for a dog. I don't have a lifestyle that that I could be consistent for a dog. But I think I might foster a dog. Because fostering you could take for a weekend, you know, you could hand it back. This is through Shenton Park? Shenton Park. And there was this such a big need for me to want to look after something that I even sort of said to Shenton Park, I am happy to take your worst case scenario. I am happy to medicate. I'm happy to do all that. I said that in like on the Thursday, on the Friday, I get this phone call from Shenton Park going, there's this dog that we really, really need someone to foster straight away. Her name's Umpa. She's got a great personality. Great personality. And I'm like, oh, okay, okay all right. Um, That's the warning there. sign on dating sites, right? <laughs> when someone goes, I've got a great personality. And, but they kept on stressing great personality. <laughs> I'm like, okay, great, <laughs> yeah. fantastic. Um, so I go in there and I can actually smell... Oompa before she even comes into the room. And I'm like, oh, you know, there's a lot of dogs barking and stuff. And next thing, this... this They described the smell. It was just... It was a yeasty, wet newspaper kind of smell. Okay. And all these... The Shinta Park, like, oh, you're the one coming to get Oompa. Oompa's great personality. Oh, she's a special dog. Great personality. Next thing, she comes in and... This dog has so bad, like her mange is so bad that her skin is grey and she's got bits of hair coming in and out. I remember that. Yeah. Because she had sores on her as well. She had sores on her. She was oily. She smelt. She comes in and they're like, oh, and by the way, she's she's a little bit contagious. She's got... Conductivitis in both her ears, uh, both her eyes, and both her ears are 
infected. So you're going to have to medicate both of those things. Plus she's got mange, so she's also going to have to go in to the vets quite often. I'm like, great. <laughs> Oompa comes in and she's like, oh, my God, oh, my God, and she <laughs> jumps on me. And I remember there was a split moment where I was like, I don't really want to touch you. But I get down on my knees and she puts her paws on my shoulders and she looks me straight in the eye and I'm like, oh, my God, we're going to help each other. And at that point, as I'm taking them, Shentenbach turns around and goes, oh, by the way as well, she's just come on heat. So we cannot, under any circumstances, get her pregnant. So she's going to have to stay in your house for two weeks. Before I leave, is there anything else? (laughs) Oh, the personality. Fantastic. (laughs) Yeah. So I get her home and, you know, for the first two days she was all over the place. I just remember she just had this, it was such a need to just be loved. And I kind of went about trying to fix this and trying to fix that and made this talcum powder for her and, Everyone that she went to go and see, their initial response was like, Ugh. but then they'd kind of, she'd get them to cuddle her and stuff. So over the course of about nine months, it took her um, a lot of vet time and everything. But during that time, I didn't realise that um, as I'd take her for a walk and part of my, part of me feeling better was that I would go for walks. She actually made me go for walks. I ended up going for hour and a half walk in the morning and hour and a half a walk in the afternoon. And I was finding that this was where I would just be looking forward to these walks. I didn't want to work. I didn't want to do anything film-wise. And what I noticed was when I'd go and take her um, to the park, I was meeting all these people that weren't in the film industry and they had other things to talk about. And I'm like, oh, my God. It's nice, isn't it? Oompa was this great icebreaker because they weren't talking to me they were talking about umpa and i started realizing as well that all these random people would be coming up to me in the street going is that umpa like the umpa from shenton park and i'm like uh yeah so they knew of they, the dog and umpa from the reputation of well I through shenton park i didn't particularly understand why they knew her until i realized that she had they had done this massive big um call out for sponsors specifically for her because her medication was going to cost so much. So 250 people had donated money specifically for her. So all these people had like invested interest in the well-being of this little dog that looked like a hyena, like a dirty hyena. And she had this knack of just going up to people all the time. So at this point... I'm starting to start feeling, wow, there's more to life. There's more things I'm feeling. And if this dog can be so mistreated but still so open to loving people, maybe I could do. Um, And there was this one moment where we were walking down the street early morning in North Perth and there was this homeless guy who was dragging a suitcase or dragging a suitcase full of his his things and umpa had run in front of him had sat in front of him so he stopped walking and she just looked at him and he got down on his knees and he said is it all right if i pat your dog i'm like yeah it's fine 
And she did the same thing. She put her paws on his shoulders and he hugged her so tightly. And for about a minute, they both hugged each other and he was bawling his eyes out. I'm bawling my eyes out. And Oompa's just sitting there going, loving, 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 loving. She suddenly stops. She gets up. She goes to the side of me and she looks up at me. And this guy turns around. He goes, I can't remember the last time I've been hugged. Thank you so much. It means so much to me. And then he got up and he left. And I remember at that moment I was looking at her going, I think I know what I'm learning from you. I just got to open up my heart. And if I open up my heart, I seem to, I, I feel better. So I ended up leaving my company and going, I can't do this anymore. What I don't know. Uh, this was uh, Toe Socks. Toe Socks. Casting. And going, I think I, I just have to change. I've got to change everything. I'm moving house. I'm going to find a place. And I am going to go back to being freelance. But I have no idea what that's going to be. My only business plan was that it was going to be about empathy. Because I suddenly realised that now I've opened this floodgate. Like if Umpa can love me with everything and I'm going to love this dog with everything, then maybe I can love everyone with everything. <laughs> I had no idea what the hell I was going to do with empathy as a business plan. But all of a sudden I started, I left the company, I found this place and Umpa started getting traction on her own. Shenda Park called me up and said, oh, the news is making a story about um, dogs and mental health. Umpa's, you know, she's now grown her hair. She had grown her hair into this lion mane and it was this soft red hair everywhere. What's her breed? Uh, it's Sharpe mixed with something, right? Sharpe with a bit of golden retriever and a lot of staffy. Okay. So she's very short but very long-haired with lots of wrinkles. <laughs> She looks like a Muppet. <laughs> but a gorgeous Muppet, yeah. Um, and because she's the size of a, a Staffy, so she's the perfect, like, um, stuffed toy size, but very um, solid. So she can take hugs, like strong hugs, and she can give them too. So we suddenly, uh, I find myself on, I think it was Channel 9, I don't know, one of the news, news stories, doing this story about... Um, fostering dogs and Oompa was great on camera and they loved it <laughs> next thing she's um, ABC radio do a radio thing with her <laughs> I'm the spokesperson for Oompa uh, and then she gets in a uh, book and then she gets into another book and then that goes viral and that goes international. Wow. And she does all this amazing stuff. And I'm like just literally riding on her coattails at this point. She's like the Forrest Gump of dogs. She is. <laughs> she is. She's the lassie, but in business, really good in business and finances. Attracting it to you. <laughs> yes. <laughs> really? Why? Because you weren't good at business and finance. <laughs> <laughs> I wasn't. And she just looked at me like, don't worry, Claire, I've got it all sorted. <laughs> so... Next thing, like this has gone out and I start getting phone calls from people kind of calling me up going, Claire, we've got this project. Uh, we think it's up your alley. It's, it's you know, human-based um, and we'd really like you to, to come and 
you know, start filming this stuff. And at that point I was I'm really into um, filming for friends. I was doing these like very professional home videos for friends, which I had kind of thinking, how the I love it. How do I get paid for it? Yeah. I had no idea how to get paid for it. Now this was this was before um, social media became really big. So all of a sudden I started getting these phone calls from people going, well, can you come on set and film stuff? And I remember talking well, like to like behind the scenes? Yeah, but the behind the scenes wasn't a thing at that point. Oh, okay. So I had been um, doing some casting for a, a, a big television campaign and the director had come up to me and he was like, oh, so um, what do you do outside of this? And I'm like, oh, I do a bit of documentary stuff. He's like, oh, well, would you like to come on set and film what we do? And I'm like, oh, okay. So I go out and set film what we do. Now, this director, I didn't, didn't really know who this director is, but he came up to me the next day and goes, oh, um, this, is, this is my most recent um, film project that I've done. And he shows me this trailer and it's got Daniel Craig in it. And I'm like, oh, oh okay. Really? <laughs> okay. It's like, actually. Before his Bond fame. <laughs> before his Bond fame. So anyway, I come out on set and I film what's happening and I and he we finish off and he comes up and says to the producer, see, I told you, I told you it should be good. But she's like, Yeah, yeah. And I'm like, I don't know what. He goes, Look, I saw where you were where you I saw the moments you're getting. All I want you to do is cut all those moments together with music. I'm like, oh okay. Glorified, easy, easy. glorified home video, except yeah. getting paid TV commercial prices. <laughs> Wicked. Cut this thing together and he's like, perfect. My first rough edit wasn't, I knew it was way too long. It went for like six minutes and he was like, no, this is perfect. This is exactly what I want. And he shows it to the client. And of course the client's loving it because there's them working and, you know, it, it's all empathy. It's all people suddenly realising how much they love what they do. And I'm showing them at their best moments. Next thing, I get, start getting more of these things. It's funny, isn't oh, yeah. it, how work just how, you, how, you build a niche and then you don't even know you're building no, a niche. I literally was like, what do I want to do? How do I want to do fantastic. it? fantastic. And then um, so I started getting these, these call-ups for people going, I don't really know what you do, Claire, but just do what you do. <laughs> and this was before content creation yeah was a thing sure so essentially i was being a content provider which was actually a good time because not every tom dick and harry had a had a phone camera and or vlogging cameras that they would go and do all this Facebook stuff Facebook wasn't really a thing mm. neither was um you know using youtube no that for came... your social media yeah was a thing for commercials so i started getting a lot of these Things and, and at the same time, I was also getting. Um, I had been doing a little bit of work um, with some communities up north, and originally they had been surveys for mining companies, and I had stopped doing them because I had found it pretty conflicting. Now, we've got to explain that because <laughs> I did that as well. Yeah. It not it hard? Like, I remember, I don't know if you were there, 
but I got sent up a few times on my own. Mm. And I remember sitting down talking to this lady who said her earliest childhood memories was fishing with her father. And she goes, and we were fishing over there and there was no water anymore. It was just this bank of dry sand. And she said, um, and my fondest memories were that. And we had to stop the interview because all of a sudden you hear this, one of those road trains, the, the trains uh -huh. that takes like 15 minutes for yeah. it to go. So we're just waiting. And it was just such a juxtaposition. Like she's talking about her fondest memories, living on this land, being brought up by her father. And then there's no water anymore that she's referring to. And the interview gets cut by this, you know, this train that takes 15 minutes with all the iron ore in it. She was sitting on a hill, right? Yeah. We'd go back again. No more hill. Yeah. Like we're talking a massive hill. All gone. Yeah. Within a period of um, two months. Yeah. No more hill. Nothing. And all their memories of growing up on this land. It's not that the memories aren't there. The land's not there anymore. Yeah. Yeah. And you realize how much destruction there is. I felt, I felt that conflict. Um, because you've also got archaeologists there, archaeos, then you've got the elders, then you've got the uh, the mining company representatives. Yeah, and the anthros. And the anthro anthropologists. And then you're filming what happens. Yeah. Yeah. Good money, but it was a conflict. Yeah, it was, it, it was... It did teach me a lot about um, working with, I hate the term stakeholder, but you suddenly realise when, you, when you're in such a complicated environment, how to see how a project can fit for everyone. Yeah. But I had left that um, because it, had, it really, I had had a hard time dealing with both of those very conflicting things. How long were you doing that for? Oh, I did it for about three and a half, four years. Oh, wow. Yeah. It was during the mining boom and there was a lot of work. But I had let, I had met a lot of amazing elders, um, had spent a lot of time with some communities and I had always kind of said to them, look, use me. I'm up here. Use me for archival purposes as well. If there is anything else that you can, that you want to say, that you want to do, because this is your footage. You own it. So I had left that previous, and I'd gone back to being TV commercial world. And TV commercial world and empathy are also very conflicting. Yeah. <laughs> you got to kind of put that in that corner and, and just. You've got to really dig hard to find that empathy on, on commercials. You really gotta like put that on the shelf and and ha be happy with it on the shelf. So I, you know, going back, I'd done all this stuff, and this dog had made me realise that actually empathy is actually the only thing that's worth it. At the end of the day, you can get all the money you want, but if it's going to, it's gonna sneak up on you at some stage that you are not happy with something. And what that does is it festers into you manifesting that into your world. So now I've got this dog and... Um, a constant reminder. A constant reminder. Yeah. And she physically will remind me. It's like she'll stand on top of me and look at me and go, remember. <laughs> <laughs> remember being in the moment and loving that moment. 
now that I'm, I'm starting to get these jobs that are kind of Claire-specific, because people don't really know what I do, but what I have been doing, which I didn't realise at the time, was going into these experiences, but from the outside, showing people the enjoyment they have from the inside, but at the same time reading those multiple stakeholders. You got your client, you got satisfying. Your, you got your client, you yeah. got your production company, you got your crew, you've got your your talent. That's a balance in itself, hey. Yeah. But if you if you do it with love and transparency, you can find a way. Bloody hippie. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> Your parents are hippies in the sixties <laughs> in London. I accept that. <laughs> so, you know, fast forward a little while, I found love, and I was in a really good space. And all of a sudden, I get this call to do to go back to Robin. I hadn't been back to Robin for years. But this time around, it was for an arts-based, non-for-profit, community-based project. And I'm like, I think this fits. The values. Of, the values. Yeah. I'm literally, I'm now here for the community, with the community, and only for the community. You know, I start working a lot on learning, learning about, learning from elders, not just about culture, but about my space within that culture um, and understanding our relation to everything and everything. You know, you're sitting around um, late at night around a fire and I had the privilege of being able to listen. And I, I stress that a lot, listening, because, you know, we spend a lot of time talking a lot. What we've forgotten, and this is something that I think we, we lack because we don't have those, I don't have my grandparents around anymore, of sitting quietly and listening to stories. Um, listening to stories that are relevant to you. And I remember doing that when I was a little kid. Like I remember mum taking me to her get-togethers and, and being the kid that had to sit under the table and entertain myself. But what I didn't realise at the time was that I would quietly listen to all these yeah. stories. And because I'm not present in the room, I'm not – it's not about my opinion. It's about just listening to how people are working, how people are talking. It's very different today because yeah. what parents tend to do is send their kids, oh, I want to play with the iPad or the PlayStation. So – while the adults are talking, the kids will go. Unknowingly, they're not absorbing those inf that information that you could learn from. As kids, we had to have manners and be there at the table, right? Yeah. And shut up. <laughs> <laughs> and but you learn a lot from those experiences. You learn a lot, and and a lot of that I think is also subconscious. Yeah. That you are learning how to um, instead of being bored, you've got to find things to do yeah that's quiet <laughs> yeah that's you know allowed and I spent a lot of time and I learned very quickly when I was out on country that being out on country it is about letting things go it's not about what you know it's about how aware you are 
look out for the signs, read the signs. The wind that's coming in is actually telling you some information that's going to help you. Um, Even the animals. Absolutely. Yeah. So when, when I'm out there filming, it's to me, the, the country is literally going, if you have everything, if your intentions are right, if everything is going well, all you have to be, Claire, is in the right place at the right time. So just be, be. Oh, aware and just be. be. And if you're, if you're there and you're present, you'll know when that camera needs to be turned on. You know where you're shooting for that and you're picking up. And on you learn that trust, don't you? Absolutely. You know, I, I remember getting told by someone that's very dear to me. She said to me, and, you know, she's a Yinjibani lady, and she said, the thing about it is, Claire, it's your curiosity is your, your best tool. Be curious. You're always curious. I think I think it should be everybody's. Yeah. People have lost that ability. Oh, they haven't lost it. But, you know, there was a saying uh, that I've always lived by is that when you stop laughing at life, life ceases to be funny. <laughs> and for a lot of people, it ceased to be funny. People, their lives have just become this trench warfare. Yeah. And that curiosity you have as a child goes. As a child, you're curious about every fucking thing. <laughs> you know, why did he eat that lolly? Ah, uh, why did he pull that face? And why is the green? Why is the grass green? <laughs> why is there such things as mosquitoes? Come on, surely, <laughs> why, why do we have mosquitoes? You're always asking those questions, and I think as adults, that's a it's a good quality to regain and have, because life is always teaching you things. Yeah, but people have stopped listening, like you said before. Yeah. But yeah. curiosity is why I do podcasting. Yeah. It's why you go up with a camera because you don't know what. And I, I suppose in, unlike drama and commercials where everything is planned, you do, when you're in the country, you don't know what's going to happen. So you're really you're filming by the cuff. Yeah. You're filming completely with intuition of anticipating the anticipation of the winds, the weather, the animals, the people. Yeah. And you become more in tune, I think, right? Yeah. Yeah. Is that what you found with yourself? I do a lot of reading the room and picking up on people. I think the thing that I love about documentary is it effectively, it's not even about my camera skills or whether I got the sound right. It really is about um, empathy. I... I love trying to understand myself and people around me. And the one thing that I have learned in documentaries, everything is grey. You can't judge people from face value because everyone has their trauma that they're coming from. Someone has reasons why they're doing And some of that stuff that they're doing is shit. Talking comes, with talking comes healing. Um, the one thing that I, I did learn a lot about with Umpa is she doesn't talk back, so she let me talk and talk and talk and talk. And all she would ever do is just sit there and go, squeeze me harder, love me more, let me lick your face. And having being able to have that bouncing board of someone who is so non-judgmental, who's going, just tell me. Did you physically talk to Umpa? Absolutely. All the so time. it wasn't a mental thing, but you were physically talking and letting it out. Yeah, yeah. And 
That's all people need sometimes. Yeah. You know, a lot of the just time. people to listen. I mean, we're sitting here going, I just, we live in a really judgmental world. I mean, from that time that I was doing content creation, which really at the time was a cool content creation, to where it's come now, and that would be, it'd be a good 10 years of, it's suddenly gotten to the point where it's it's gone beyond, it's now judgmental yeah. content. And I sit there going, why the fuck are we judging people? I'm not perfect. I have horrible trauma stuff that I'm dealing with. So everyone has. And it's just, it's escalating the problem because the people that are judging have the deepest like demons that they're dealing with. Absolutely. And I think a lot of it is out of fear. Oh, I think a lot of it is, it's an outward projection and it's coming from fear. And you actually see it. You see it, especially on Instagram. Like there was a girl that played the cello. Um, gorgeous looking girl, but fantastic at the cello. Got all these comments. You're great. You're great. All of a sudden I noticed that after every composition she played, there would be like, oh, you're so gorgeous. You're so gorgeous. Uh, we want to see more of you. So slowly over a period of six months, it went from her playing the cello to suddenly her dancing and then from her dancing to her wearing skimpier gear dancing. And all of a sudden, boom, gone. She wasn't in the picture. Mm. And next minute she came back saying she was dealing with anxiety and um, harsh comments that came down, not realizing that her self-worth before was her playing the cello. Yeah. No one could bring that down. And if you could, you were a musician and she would listen to, to that. But all of a sudden her self-worth now became about how she looked. And that's a house of cards. All it yeah. takes is one comment. And it probably was. And she, I remember her saying it was. Yeah. But she had let it get to that because she moved her self-worth from playing the cello to suddenly how she looked. And with young kids today, they're judging their own lives by everyone else's fake lives. Yeah. And it's become this fear-based, judgmental, um, and a lot of the judging is on themselves. Mm. They're judging how what they're not doing well. Why isn't? Why don't I get the life that I'm seeing that person has or that person? Not realizing that no one's got that life. Ninety-eight yeah. <laughs> percent of what you see is fake, yeah. and um, it's it, it's a hard time for kids. Big time. But it's also, I mean, I look at a lot of like people our age. Yeah. And it's so easy to get drawn into it. Of course, because, yeah, of it's, course, it's, it's it's an addiction. Yeah, right? big time. Mm. And I think, you know, a lot of the stuff that I, I, I film, um, especially when I'm out on country, when I'm editing it, I'm always... In, in in my heart, thinking of the feeling, can I express the feeling with these images? Because there was magic when we were out there. And what I'm covering is people at their magic moment that they don't tend to see because they're just feeling it. And what I've noticed, especially over the last 10 years of working, continually out there and making a lot of 
edits and, 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 and cuts for the community is seeing people who that feeling gets reiterated by seeing themselves feeling it. Oh, okay. Yeah. So they're seeing there's they're, they're physically seeing themselves enjoying the country. They're physically seeing themselves at their most peaceful. In other words, it's reminding them yeah. of what is bringing that peace yeah. by seeing it. And also letting them know that I'm watching myself feel it. I'm watching myself see it, which means I can feel it and see it again. Yeah. And the more I see it, the more it gets reiterated. And I wasn't performing because part of my job is to disappear into the distance. So I'm covering, I'm filming you guys doing stuff without you realising that I'm filming you doing stuff. You've made that an art form, right, Claire? <laughs> so much so that my therapist has gone, yeah, that's great for your career, but for your life you kind of need to. <laughs> you need to step in front a little bit. You can't hide in the background. Oh, yeah. She turned around one day and I'm, she's like, yeah, you got where are you in the equation? And I'm like, what do you mean? She goes, where are you in that equation? I hear you talk about other people. and yeah, True, true. And I looked at her and went, I don't understand what you're talking about. What do you mean? She goes, you need to be in the equation of your life. I'm like, <laughs> I never thought about that. Yeah. And I'm like, the difficulty is though, to, I said to my therapist, I've made a career out of not being a part of the equation. Yeah. And enjoying everyone else's life. So now I've come to a point in my life where I'm sitting there going, okay, that's great you're doing, you're empathising, you're doing all this stuff, but what about you? At some point, you've got to put that camera down and you've got to look at yourself and be empathetic to you. You know, you're talking about 90% of the artists out there, especially in the film industry. Really? Yeah. I mean, especially actors. Yeah. Because actors make a living escaping into other characters okay. so much so it becomes more comfortable being another character than yourself because right? you get kudos for disappearing yeah and you get rewarded and so it's it's again that's a paradox because why do you think so many actors end up in in a state that they can't get out of yeah or even worse on medication and depression oh yeah because what happens when the film is over? You've got to start again. Who who am I? I've got to find another one. Who am I in this world? So yeah, I and you know it does translate to crew roles as well. Yeah. Crew roles is, in a sense, that you're on freelance is hard anyway, because you never have time off in your head. Oh. So when it, when you don't have a job, you're looking for jobs. Yeah. So you never can just sit there and go. You know, I've got uh, long service coming up. <laughs> well, I mean, the thing is when COVID hit. It, it made suddenly, everybody. It suddenly occurred to me that I had forgotten to live in the moment because my whole life was either prepping for a job or editing a job. So I was either in the past or I was in the future. So the present became this thing that was just leading me to the future. Leading me to And then the COVID thing. hit and you're like, Holy Oompa, where <laughs> the hell are you, Oompa? I tell you what, Oompa <laughs> needed to get paid to be a therapist. She was like, holy <laughs> shit, can you guys just get your shit together? So she's been your biggest therapist, really. 
Um, she is my solid. Soul. She is the epitome of of my heart See, in a fairy. That's why you see a lot of homeless people with dogs. Yeah. And you, you know because why. She, she, the moment, the moment I started getting anxiety, the moment my heart started beating, she would be there. And she would be – and what I realised what she was doing was she would, she would put one paw on where my heart is and one paw where my liver is and she would push all her weight to the point where it hurt and then she'd lick my face. And what I realised what she was doing was getting me back in this moment feeling this pain, trying to breathe. She was literally going, you are here now. Your anxiety is coming because you're either thinking of the future or dogs know dealing with the past. And she's like, this is not good. And every time I'd go on Facebook or stuff, she would also do the same thing. She'd really? stop looking at that because that's making you, you're thinking you're switching off, but you're not switching off. And the one thing that I noticed. That's with, interesting, with, what you said. Thinking you're switching off, but you're not. not. And the, the, the scary thing is, like what you were saying about actors, what crew do really well, and this is what my therapist was saying, is I have completely disassociated from myself. Crew will work and work and work physically, not even, yeah. not even acknowledge that their body is falling apart because they can't, because I need to keep on going. I need to get up. Even though I might have had a really long day, I've got to get up the next morning and somehow plaster through. And go, so, go to war again. So literally I'm going to ignore my body, which is telling me you're tired. Yeah. I'm going to put a smiley face on. I'm going to be happy because I'm, thank God I've got a job in this industry that I love. That's my dream. And this is where that whole thing boiled down to 10 years ago where I suddenly went, I need to get alive. I had literally done, as much as I had done great work and found empathy and had done all that, I found myself had gone back into that cycle of suddenly going, I have worked myself to the bone. The reason that kept me going is because I kept on saying, I'm doing something that I, I love to yeah. do. I, well, I, I understand that totally. Yeah? Instead of actually going, it's great that you're doing what you love to do, but what is your body actually saying to you, Claire? And also what I found, and it took me ages, because, you know, my career was based on a lot of it was ego too. Ego in a way, not to other people, but ego for me to sort of go, no, Wayne, this is what I set out to do. <laughs> if I leave now, and it wasn't until I got older, I looked back and thought, you know, there's... I never set out to be a director. I set out to be a storyteller. But there are other things in my life that give me love. It's just I don't know what the fuck they are because <laughs> I've, I've just been so tunnel visioned in where I'm going. Yeah. And I, I swear I think I've pushed a lot of things aside that came into my life, especially in my 20s when I was in Sydney. Yeah. Because I was so tunnel visioned. If I'd only just, you know, that whole let go, be in the moment, like when you're in up north, I would have been able to accept those things and see them for what they are. And, it, you know, thank God it, I, I came to that realisation and, you know, people couldn't understand why I left the industry. And it wasn't because I fell out of love with it. It's just that I fell in love with other things. Yeah. I love ancient history. I'd always push that aside. But... Loved ancient history. 
wanted to travel more, even though I'd traveled a lot mm. and it was with work and things like that, but never that just pleasure of, you know, but like you said, where am I in this equation? Yeah. I just want to be Wayne appreciating ancient Egypt. I want to be able to sit here in a podcast and not judge myself of, I need to be the next Joe Rogan. I need to make this much money. No, Wayne, I'm doing this because I'm curious about people <laughs> and I like talking and I like listening to people's stories. Yeah. But it's so easy to get into that trap. Yeah. And a lot of people in the film industry are there. Yeah. They, you know, I know how hard it is. You're constantly trying to prove yourself. Oh. You're constantly trying to raise money. You're constantly pitching ideas, pitching yourself. It is a Sisyphean, you know, the Sisyphean who pushed the boulder uphill yeah. every day. Yeah. I mean, it can become a hard slog. And yeah. sometimes I'm not surprised that you get burnt out. Yeah. What, what I'm wanting to know is you went and found this empathy. You, went, you got these jobs up north that took you in nature and everything was fine. Then you come back to work on a major TV series. <laughs> and I'm like, where did that fit in? Like what made you decide to, to leave those jobs where you were getting that empathy mm. and come back? And it was like, it's a great series. Like, and you came back and, and worked to the bone on, these, on this television series. What was the, Was it a money thing and, and permanent work? It was, I think... I wanted to have some time at home. I wanted to spend time at home, in my home, with my dog, with my partner. But the funny thing about this industry is you're then suddenly going, I'm on a 50 to 60 hour week. I'm home on a 50 to 60 hour week. So the idea was that I'd be home and I was home. I'd be able to go home and hang out with my dog my partner for the couple of hours I was awake before I had to go to bed to get up in the morning to go out and do it again. Wow. So it was like, okay, <laughs> I've got to move from one thing to another. And it really hasn't, you know, at least, the, you know, when I was away and I go out on country and stuff, I'm getting fed. Yeah, spiritually. Spiritually and and I'm learning and I'm – not just learning, I'm learning as a woman. Like a lot of the stuff I was doing was a lot of women's projects. So I got to sit with a lot of women and talk and ask about women's stuff, yeah. you know. Um, and then I, I come back because I want to be home, but I'm not really home. I'm working. And, and Working harder. Working harder and disassociating more with my body. I mean... Look, I went to the um, optometrist six months ago because my eyes, I kept on seeing double. So I went to go see the optometrist and she looked at my eyes and she goes, oh, your eyes have disassociated from each other. Oh, my God. So when I was getting tired, what was happening, because I was looking through a viewfinder for so long, an eyepiece, which means one eye is looking through an eyepiece, the other eye is closed. A long periods of time. Man, you don't think about that. And she was like, well, when you close one eye, what the brain will do if you do this for a long enough period of time is your brain will go, oh, we don't need to be dealing with that one. We just need to be dealing with the main one that's working really hard. So when I would get tired, 
the main eye that I was working all the time and the muscles were getting really, really strong would flip into, start turning in and the other eye would stay straight. But my brain has now gone, well, I don't need to merge those two images together. They're two now separate things that are coming from separate entities because we're not working together, which is almost like, you know, a metaphor metaphor for your whole body and, and brain. When they're not working in sync, you're all over the place. Yeah. You know, the optometrist said, well, we're going to have to put a prism in one eye, which will kind of deviate. And, and you know, your eyes will get up. I'm sitting there going, I did not even You think. don't think about it. No. Then I, you know. And it makes sense. Absolutely. And I'm like, I'm 43 and my body is already, it's, it's showing the problems that this particular part, type of job that you do wear and tear of your body. Well, do you know, people that aren't in the industry don't realise how much of a labouring job it is, <laughs> as in gear and carrying gear and packing and, and you know, you're, especially when you work on those jobs alone, um, oh. some of those documentaries, you're doing everything, yeah. right? Most of the time, I'm, it's just me. I'm doing sound, I'm doing camera, I'm doing directing, I'm working out the edit, Um Putting a flecky between two rocks. Oh, carrying, everything. trying to carry all your equipment on your back so that you're completely... And you've always had a bad back, from what I remember. Oh, always. Even going and back to when, you know, 1999, I think, we worked <laughs> together. And you were having a, a back problem then. Oh, because your posture's shit yeah. when you're filming. Because you're, all the important stuff is not you. It's keeping that camera steady. Yeah. So your whole body will go into weird places just so yeah. that that camera is nice and steady. I mean, when I first worked with you back in, what, 2000, and you guys used to call me Steady Cam Claire. Yeah. Because we didn't have enough budget to actually <laughs> have yeah. a Steady Camera dolly, so yeah. I had to somehow make it nice and smooth. Well, it was a lot lighter then. A lot lighter <laughs> But then, you know, you think of... When I was working on the Heights, you had, you know, a 15 to 20 kilo camera. It's all on one shoulder and you can't swap it to the other side to balance Especially the way they were shooting that because it was constant, right? All the time. There was like four cameras, am I right? Yeah. I would have done about 1,600 hours of off the shoulder filming, looking through an eyepiece, one eye, doing all the work, all the weight. On one shoulder, which means my hips are trying to yeah, rebalance wow. that, and also like I I, I joked to um, I was joking to one of the um, a camera operator that you know if you look at camera operators they have no arse. because because what you do is you you turn your hips in all the hips yeah so that you've got you so can, your core is supporting everything. Yeah, but in a really weird way. Mm. It's not supporting in a complete... You are... Essentially what you're doing is you want to breathe without using your shoulders. But so, you've also got to wow. put all the weight in, in certain ways. So you're a woman with no ass, a bad back and cross-eyed. <laughs> how how glorious is that? It's attractive, All Claire. for my dream job. And the love. <laughs> Wow, go on. But you kind of, you, you know, you have to take a, a step back sometimes and go, well, hang on a minute. And this is something that I wish I could I could tell young people that want to go into. Well, you are now, right? Through the podcast. 
but they know they won't listen because I didn't listen, is that you are a better filmmaker, no matter what you do, whether you're in crew, whether you're an actor, whatever, you are a better filmmaker when you have a life that you have lived. Oh, I, I used to say that to my students. My students used to come to me at the end of their advanced diploma and what do you think my next steps would be? And for the directors, I'd always say, go travel. Yeah. Go travel, fall in love, get your heart broken, lose your wallet, yeah. get in trouble and be start living a life that you can draw from in yes. your stories. And be curious yeah. with that life. Yeah. Have interests that are not film orientated. Have... I, I sometimes sit there like you were saying, you know, I wanted to go travel just as Wayne. I want to go and experience life without thinking, the camera. Did, I, did I get a, an angle to cut that so that I can cut that? Yeah. You know? Yeah. Because, well, you know, your mind and switch off. Your mind is, you know, it took me ages to just sit down and watch a movie for the pure enjoyment of it without critiquing how the blocking is and the composition and the acting. Do you know, it took me a while because your, your, your brain has trained for that. Yeah. Whenever, cause it's your industry. And the problem with something like film is when you experience life out there, everything can be related back to film. It's not like you're doing carpentry. <laughs> Right, so you, you see something on the side of the road, you're like, "Oh, mental note, mental note." Like, you see a beautiful sunset, how the light's falling. Oh, I got to capture, I got to remember that. So you can never really switch off unless you've. That's it's always the hardest thing. We we're talking about this to Nathan, the the artist that came on, the amazing guy. Balance, mm. yeah, and it's a paradox because you're doing what you love, like you said, and you're getting paid for it, so you want to do more of it. But yet what happens is your life on the side where your balance comes from that feeds that artist in their artistic way gets left aside. Yeah. So now your art starts to suffer because you've got no balance, mm -hmm. which is why a lot of people that are very successful, whether in writing or in, in art, you know, they're alcoholics. They suffer. Like I watched the series of Picasso and, oh, my God, like what a hard life. Yeah. But yet he took those experiences and he tried to make that balance after a while. But it's not easy. No, no. It's, it's not like a nine to five job where people go to work and they can leave it behind and just come home. And I never, I always used to look down on that. Because I'd be thinking, you've got one freaking life in this body. Like, what are you doing? But, you know, I also see their life is a balance outside of their work. Yeah. So the work is not who they are. It's what they do to provide them the life outside. Where in the arts, you're doing what you love. But at the same time, that can be over-consuming. Yeah. Where you don't have that balance to escape to. Because yeah. there's no escape. Yeah. Yeah. And that's that's... That's the confusing thing because I, I say, to, I say to, to students, don't follow your dream, follow your curiosity because your dream is kind of skew if you're assuming that that is what it should be. Yeah. So you, you strive for something that you may be missing so many other things like we were talking about of your dream yeah but then you suddenly go well i got the dream and it wasn't really what i thought but i've missed so many other things yeah 
you know, like you talk to people who talk about fame. They got the fame and there's something like, it's not everything, it's not no. fantastic. And I kind of, I just. Isn't this funny? I remember sitting down talking with you when we were just youngsters and all our dreams was about pretty much what you've been doing. Yeah. <laughs> and, and yet now we're talking with experience and retrospect to be able to be wise enough to separate that to where you are now and yeah. go, you know what? In life, in, in a metaphysical way, yeah. this is what's wrong with how we were thinking. But yet it was a natural way because everybody was like around us at that time was that's what we were doing. But as adults, you become a wiser person to sort of go, you know what? Balance is everything. Curiosity will help you out so much more. Yeah. To ask the right questions and then to listen to somebody a little bit more experienced. Yeah. Um, but it's a nice thing to know that you've grown at least. Yeah. And I'm, I'm really grateful, really grateful that I've managed to have a life and create, create a career that allows me to go, I don't have the time to study something that I can meet people who do and live yeah. their lives. That's <laughs> me. Learn, yeah. learn a whole heap of stuff. Yeah. And, like, and, and, I mean, the documentaries have taken me to places I would never have gone to, meeting people I would never mm. have met, to have life-changing experiences on a personal level. I kind of sit there sometimes going, this is just me finding a way to finance my journey of trying to find out who I am yeah. by getting me into projects that will fly me here and fly me there. You know, I, I'll never forget um, my trip to Zimbabwe. It completely changed me because I had an assumption when I went there and what I learnt when I was there was that there was so much that I needed to learn and that I could learn from people. Because when was that, Claire? Oh, that would have been about 2008. Mm. Mugabe was in. I remember, oh, really? Yeah, it was quite scary. <laughs> we went in there and the first thing that we did, because I, I had gotten a media pass, it was very difficult to get a media pass at that point. We get into Zimbabwe and the producer has paid off all these people and we get to this, we get driven to this this space, this place and one by one we have to go into this room and do this one-on-one -on -one interview. We're not allowed with the rest of the crew. We have to sit in this room and have this interview with someone who's wearing a uniform, like a military uniform and I remember just as I was going in there, the producer kind of casually said to me, oh, by the way, um, we've got you down as a stills photographer. We haven't actually told them that you can do that <laughs> stuff. And I'm like, don't you dare make me. I can't. I'm not going to lie. Holy fuck. Holy fuck. The guy in the uniform pulls out a Hasselblad <laughs> and goes, show me. <laughs> like this is what 2000. So, the you know, Canon, the 5D had just come out. Mm. So I had brought that, which was why they were saying oh, I was okay. a stills photographer, right? Um, because it was going to be less intrusive 
I'm here to take photos of the corruption of Robert Mugabe. <laughs> Not video, <laughs> so it's okay. <laughs> so I go into this room and there is this massive dude oh. sitting on this table with two massive dudes standing next to him. And I walk in and he's smiling, but I have it, it was the most scariest condescending smile. Yeah, the smile that never reaches his eyes. Yeah. And he tells me to sit down. And I'm like, fuck. And he has this piece of paper and he's like, so you've shown me, you've, you've sent me how much money all your equipment's worth. You are not leaving this country until you pay the tax on all this equipment. And I'm like, what tax? <laughs> yeah. And then he grabs this, like, this piece of paper, just random, you know, scrap piece of paper, and he scribbles stuff on this paper. Oh, man. It, and it, he, then he goes... It's, it's money for them. Yeah. You're not leaving this country until this paper gets signed by so-and-so. And he takes it and he puts it on a pile. And I'm like, okay, <laughs> I get up and I leave. And I'm thinking, producer will cover all this money issue and I'm sure this will be fine. Like, we might not have our passports, but we'll be, I'm sure we'll be fine. <laughs> People in Australia know <laughs> yeah. that we've come here. Hey, so, I'm a Zimbabwe citizen from now on because <laughs> I'm never leaving. So we go, oh. you know, and and... We're all like, oh, okay, cool, cool. Now we can start filming yeah. what we're here for. And it was the first time that I, you know, I'm I'm half English, half Asian. So I've kind of experienced life not completely white, um, but I haven't experienced racism. I haven't experienced standing out too far. I don't look too Asian. Yeah, we we're, were lucky that way, Claire. Some of my friends at primary school weren't and they got a lot of, yeah, Black, right. Especially in those days. Oh, those days. But when I went to Harare and the concierge, we were like, oh, we're going to go get something to eat. Like we're going to go to the supermarket and buy some food. And he's looking at us going, Mm-mm-mm-mm. and we're like, yeah, we'll be It's amazing fine. what you take for granted, hey? So we walked out. Being an Australian. It, the, the moment I realised the feeling of not being able to, to mix in, I stood out like dog's balls. And it was also a little scary because I'm lesbian and it was illegal to be oh, really? gay. In, Zim- in Zimbabwe. In Zimbabwe at the time. Mugabe did not like that. So it became very aware whilst we were walking down the street that everyone could see that we were not only different, that we most probably had money. And this guy with an AK-47 comes up to us who's standing at the corner normal clothes but he comes up to us and he goes where are you going we're like we're going to the supermarket he's like i'm going to take you to the supermarket and we go in there and i buy a couple of things and i pay for this whatever we've got and she gets a handful of sweets and she gives them to me and at the time zimbabwe was so their financial situation was so bad they couldn't even afford the coins so they would give you change in sweets. Oh God, really? Mm. I think their their biggest their biggest note was a hundred. Was it nearly a trillion? Mm. Sounds era. like Haiti now, Haiti now, and Venezuela. So 
anyway, we go about and we, we're, we're out filming this family and it's, you know, I'm working for um, Plan International. There's this sponsored child that the producer wants us to, to film and she's like, I have no idea who you guys are. Like you've literally rocked up. The producer's like, we've got two hours. We're going to get this thing done. This is crazy. Anyway, I go, can you just give me five minutes? So we, me and this young little girl who looks six, but I'd say she's most probably ten, um, we go off into a field. I show her the camera and I get her to film me and we have a look at what she's done and then I film her and so she can kind of go, okay, I get what you're, what you're doing. And, but as we're walking around, I see this $100,000 lira note in the field score i pick it up and i'm like oh i can't give this to her mum because she's a sponsored child so i go back and i'm like oh look here and i hand over this piece of you know this money and the mum looks at it she goes we can't eat it it's no value to us and it was at that point that i was like fuck i've missed the point entirely yeah absolutely missed the point and i'm so privileged that i don't even know what it's like to be literally starving so anyway, we sit there and I've got the camera and the girl's looking at me and she kind of like nods her head and I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. So she does this thing and she's, she sings this line very quietly. And what I didn't realise is the whole family was standing behind me and they sing the same line back to her and she sings the line back but a little louder and they sing. And this goes on for a few lines. And I'm in the middle of this and I'm feeling this like surge of energy. Next thing, she just bursts out with this song and the family behind her are clapping and they're singing with her and they're, they're supporting her song. And then she, and I'm bursting out crying because this, I'm so privileged to be in the middle of this yeah. moment. And then she, she finishes her song and then she looks because she'd been looking straight down the camera and then she looks slightly off to me and she puts a thumbs up and I'm like, oh, my God. And the women behind her were like, la, 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 you know. <laughs> and I suddenly was like, I've completely missed the point. This isn't the first world country coming in and going, oh, you need help. This is us having to go, shut the fuck up and listen. This family are getting the energy from each other because of the strength they have to support each other. To survive. Nothing to do with money. Yeah. Money actually can't make us survive. But support and community is how humans yeah. are at it. And do you know what? It's in every third world nation that are struggling to survive. Yeah. Myanmar, parts of Africa. You'll see that community is strong yeah. and they appreciate that. And it's something that we have lost. Yeah. Oh, my big lesson, like you, that I missed the point, was I went there expecting to feel sorry for them. Instead, I felt sorry for myself because I realized what I had missed out on. Yeah. And that was a huge thing for me because I found I came home and I was so disappointed in myself yeah. for thinking that way before I went. But, you know, we learned a lesson. So at least after that, when you did your trips and you spoke to the elders in, in Australia, 
you already had that lesson. Yeah. You're coming in with a perspective now that's very different before you went to Zimbabwe. Now you've grown as a person and you understand how important it is to one money doesn't bring you the happiness, but when times are hard, what you've got is the people yeah. that are around you to your give community. you that to your community. And it's something that I think with our work and, and, and our lives being online, we've lost that mm. because we, we are having to, we are getting told that we are part of the world community, a big community, which is why so many people are feeling isolated today. Mm. Instead of bringing people together, it has in a way of communication, but in, in what you experience, what I experience by being together, people have become so isolated and isolated. Yeah. So they're getting more anxiety, more depressed, more depressed. It feeds on itself. It does. And as random as this sounds, this is how it felt when I was kind of on the verge of that position, weird thing that happened. The moment I felt it was, it was the feeling of cutting myself from everyone out of fear, which actually was completely, it left me with nothing. An emptiness. An emptiness and, and, and no energy and no strength to fight for anything. And I think this is where depression kind of comes in as well because depression is almost like the same thing. You become so insular that you forget that part of being human is the strengths of yeah, your of course. connections. Of course. It shows you humans need connection, right? Oh, they are not, they're not little soul survivors but do you know do you think it's possible or when you're alone too much out there in the wilderness you become like a ted kaczynski like the uni bomber <laughs> <laughs> not if you are connected to country oh okay yeah sure yeah there is connected a, to the to the land and what the i've learned is our connection to country is the baseline of us being able to be sane humans yeah. because we are not separate from nature. We are yeah. nature. We are part of everything. You think that would be an easy concept to understand? Well, you think you look at all the different types of religions <laughs> yeah, and all of them basically say that the same thing. We are part of everything. Yeah. It just so happens that when power becomes an issue is when you slowly start hearing and seeing people talk about separateness. We yeah. are the top. We are the ones that are in control. We are the – and it's like if that moment is when you're going to go down for. But do you know what? That's so – whenever that saying of absolute power corrupts absolutely, I mean it's happened to most religions – because suddenly what happened is you get people at the top and they realize there is this power. And then from that power, they start utilizing it in ways that is camouflaged within the faith, yeah. uh, within the clergy of that. And that happens not just in religion, but it happens oh, in all businesses. Look at, and look at, co look at the corporate world. Yeah. Look at the capitalistic setup that we have right now is about the 1%. And... We think, we're told that it's really, really good that there is a 1%, that they, you know, they shouldn't get taxed like everyone else. Well, not everyone says that, but, you know, we are relying on the people like Elon Musk to be empathetic enough to have our interests in mind. 
I don't want to put all my faith in someone. Yeah. Because his idea of what may be good isn't necessarily my idea of what may be good. But we work in a system that says that is the end goal. Yeah. And it doesn't have to be that way. Which but that's clear. the way that I think, we've decided to go. I think things are changing, though. Absolutely. I think when you speak to the average person out there, I think everybody can feel there's something, there's change in the air. I mean, it's scary because whenever a, a complete change happens, there's a, a complete reset happens. Well, there's going to be destruction. But see, the thing is, though, Wayne, is like the more that the more that people start thinking about it, questioning it, the more we have things like media that keeps on going, be scared. Yeah, of because course. Because what, what does fear do? We were just talking about it before. Yeah. Fear makes you insular. And then you start going, can't talk to you, can't talk to you, don't want to do it. Then all of a sudden you look at how community then starts breaking apart. Without community, we're all here on our own. Yeah. And then we miss the point. We live in, a, in an air-conditioned house, so we don't even know that it's getting hotter outside. <laughs> we have water that's running out of tap. Now, this is all fine until all of a sudden something happens and you don't have it. Yeah, and I think a lot of people are fearing that's going to happen. And then they'll suddenly realise, holy mm. shit, I actually have to rely on other people to help me and hope that they are empathetic and compassionate enough. Not anymore. Because <laughs> look what happened with COVID. Everyone was just like, me, me, me. Like, look at the supermarkets, what happened. So a reset needs to happen. And I think before that reset, there's uh, there's going to be economic consequences. I mean, you already see the pound now mm. falling at its lowest mm. point to the American dollar ever. Um, energy crisis, war. So at the end of the day, my business plan for empathy actually was really quite profound. Profound. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'm because, thinking of it now going, Claire. Because you never told me. You told me in a roundabout way, but you didn't just go identify it like empathy is what I need. Because the more the more projects that I do, the more the filming that I do is just to build strength and community. It's to remind you how good it is to be a part of something. And the more that we get reiterated that, the more stronger we become with that. So in a roundabout way, having a business plan based on empathy is going, well, how do I make other people remember? It's not learning, it's remembering yeah. that our connection is what makes us. What could you do other than film with that business plan, do you think? Have you ever thought about it? Yes. I think, to be honest with you, every day that I walk around, if I can help if I can connect on a very small – and, the, I mean, the problem is if you think too big, it becomes overwhelming and anxiety creeps in because it is such a big thing. Yeah. And then from that big feeling, I suddenly click into – I just want to buy myself a big property and shut everyone else off and be left alone. That's not going to help me. <laughs> I'd love it to. And one day, you know, there's always this idea that it's it's almost like um, I've got this idea of a big property, but 
with a committee on it, yeah. you know. Because <laughs> you'll end up there alone going, fuck this. Yes, but it's it's a small, <laughs> tangible, relatable community. Of course it is. That's achievable. It's achievable. But then the way I see it is if I can if I can live and breathe it every day, and it doesn't take much energy out of me, it won't take me long to go, how are you? And actually ask, yeah. how are you? And someone go, yeah, no, no, no. Amount of random strangers that will just kind of have a chat with me on the, on the train. Oh, man. I've, you know? I don't know what is it about me, but I'm attracted to all sorts. <laughs> Jocelyn's laughing her ass off. Like one day, guys in the bus just started yelling at me and then talking to me. And then a, a lady, I she cozies up to me on the bus stop and starts talking to me about stuff. And then she's throwing all her juice everywhere and it's splattering on me. <laughs> but I'm talking to her. Meanwhile, Jocelyn's off somewhere laughing. And then we get off in the city later and this woman comes up and I think it's the same lady, isn't it? So I'm like, hello, hello. And she's like waving at me and talking to me. <laughs> wasn't her at all. It was some other lady. And it just, then an, another lady comes up to me and she goes, you've been here a while. I said, no, I've just sat down. She goes, oh, you're not that same person I spoke to two hours ago. I said, no. She goes, are you interested in buying some gear? I said, no, <laughs> I'm not that person. What do I look like? <laughs> I, I was, I'm getting that all the time. I don't know if it's just, you know, I'm sort of open now to conversation yeah. and people feel it. Yeah. I don't, I really don't know. <laughs> but it's good. Like I, I enjoy it. I'm not saying I don't. You know what you should do more? And it's something you brought up earlier in the podcast. What I've just started doing, and I only kill myself, is going for long walks. Yeah. Claire. Yeah. It's, you know, after Fern passed away, I started to go for walks a lot more and I was going around Lake Munger. Oh. And, but I'd go at night time. It was just the most peaceful and beautiful thing because all the birds would be nesting and the city lights would be reflecting. And then um, one day a friend told me about the bridge walk in Perth. So oh, yeah. you go th up to the Causeway Bridge, cross that all the way through South Perth, yeah. all the way up to the Narrows Bridge, cross that, and come back. It's 10 Ks. So like an idiot, I haven't walked in months. I'm going to do the 10 K walk. Of course. So I get halfway and I'm looking back at the city just going, Uber's looking really good now. <laughs> But, you know, I started getting blisters on my feet, but I was wearing the wrong shoes. It was such a centering moment. Yeah. Like it stopped everything. And I was sitting on benches, you know, just to have a rest on the way and just watching the world go by. And it was now it was like 10 at night. I left at seven, <laughs> something. <laughs> but I got so much from it. Yeah. And I used to listen to audiobooks. So all the time I'd go around Lake Munga and listen to like four chapters. And then I loved it. So I'm, I'm starting to do that again. Yeah. And um, actually, one day you should bring Oompa. Yeah, she'd love it. And we'll just take a casual stroll and all these new smells and, and stuff at, at night. And yeah. especially seeing Perth in that way yeah. where it's peaceful, nighttime, people out, picnic blankets in the middle of the night. Just drinking coffee and and stuff. So yeah, I think walking. Do do some walking again with Umpa. Yeah, I know you take. Oh, you, you want to spend more time with Umpa, don't you? Yeah, I'm back. So what's next, Claire, for you? Oh my God, I'm still doing. Uh, there's a couple of um, doco projects that I'm working on, and trying to finish other projects. Always, isn't it? 
There's always something going on. And I don't know, I, I think th at this point I'm also starting to think of, you know, transitioning into more directing. And funnily enough, drama, directing drama. You'd be good at that. Mm. You would be. And I really want to do some, you know, um, some, dr some, some dramatic projects that are to do with, you know, that moment when at that age when you potentially could lose that innocence. Oh, yeah. And how to hold on to that innocence. Mm. Like I am, I am at my happiest when my six-year-old self has reigned to be. Because um, over the last like COVID period and stuff, I've been in adult world, adult thinking for a very long time. Adult Claire is very boring and she misses a lot of fun things fun. and she sees things very seriously. My six-year-old self is the curious one that just gets in awe and, and loves and... Mischief and ro wearing rose-coloured glasses yes. with everything. Yes. It's a great state to be in. So so looking at, you know, dramatical pieces that kind of look at that part of the human condition because we're all, we all have it. And again, that's healing as well. It's healing. You know, we lose some of that childhood, Some you know, some people lose it from traumas. Some people lose it because of anxiety. Or just a busy lifestyle. Yeah, where... of, of a system that really likes us to be serious adults that have no fun. Yeah. And then what happens is you start, you try and have fun, but with that adult mind, which is really stupid because it's not yeah. really much fun. Because there's an agenda behind the fun. Yeah. You know, there's a motive behind the fun where it's nice to just let go and play. Yeah. And be able to do that. And as, as artists, we can do that. Yeah. We have a closer connection to that than, I shouldn't say that, but, you know, somebody who's consumed by numbers all day, every yeah. day. And profit and loss and margins. It's uh, it's different. But you know what I what I did start doing when I was feeling really down, and I would, I started drinking a little bit on my own, nothing too big. But as an Asian, just drinking, <laughs> drinking periods is not a good thing. <laughs> Lots of heart palpitations and shit. But what I started, I made a pact with myself, and I said, okay, if you are drinking on your own because you just want to lose your mind. You are not allowed to drink on your own unless you're dancing. Ah. So if you really want to have that drink, you're going to put some music, music on, on you're going to dance. dance. Yeah. If you don't want to dance, you don't drink. Yeah, that's a good idea. And what I, what I found was it was – the drinking didn't help me get out of my downline. It was the movement of me dancing because then what I realised is I didn't need to drink that much because mm. I was dancing and I'd feel better. Yeah. You know, quite quickly. Music can switch moods. Some, it's the quickest way to switch I your mood. I haven't done any of that. Oh. So yeah. it had all been like all my movements were to get through the marathon. Like headbanging. <laughs> well, it was all like low impact get through the marathon because you've got work to do. Like you've got to get through this job, then you've got to get through this job, then you've got to get through this job. And... If you expel too much too quickly, wow! You're not going to so be able to do even your job. that. You were looking, you were looking oh, at yeah. So you could imagine how serious and boring. <laughs> yeah, and still, still saying to yourself, "But I'm doing something I love." 
And I, you know, isn't it so? I'm, yeah. I'm happy. I should, I'm really happy. Yeah, and it's is, like... I'm happy. Look at myself in the mirror. I'm happy. You know, I think with Jocelyn and I, it was the same. We just got tired. Yeah. You know, you just get physically and emotionally tired. And we needed some something else to spark us in in and I knew it had it couldn't be it wasn't to do, I couldn't be anything to do with the film industry. Yeah. It had to be something completely different. Look, I loved my time there. Yeah. But now it's a new journey. Yeah. So and you know, just that possibility suddenly your eyes light up. Oh, what what's it going to be? Is it going to be woodwork? It's Is it going to be Yeah, it's that curiosity. Finished. But suddenly you got all these options, Claire. Suddenly yeah. it's like, "Oh, I can learn a language," which we are. Yeah. Oh, we can learn a language. We can go study this or we can read about this and let's take up this as a hobby, sculpturing. Yeah. I've always loved stonemason work, metal work, you know, the the blacksmith. <laughs> and I, I all of this stuff and you know, I started to meet people. Yeah. Just off the cuff, that was a blacksmith that learned in Fremantle. Yeah. So I'm sitting there talking to him about what he did and what he's making. He's making these old medieval helmets at the moment. I'm like, oh, that's so cool. Yeah. You know, have you made any swords? And, <laughs> and then a friend of mine's doing woodwork and I noticed you were doing woodwork too. And, yeah. and it just suddenly the options and that excitement yeah. and that curiosity, that kid came back again. Yeah. And I remembered that feeling discovering film yeah and stories yeah and look it'll always be part of my life yeah but it was so nice to suddenly get a blank slate again and go you know what i'm gonna start a podcast i don't know anything i all i know is i i spend more time that was that was a sign i was spending more time listening and watching podcasts than i was movies yeah and i felt really guilty because the students would ask me have i seen this film and i hadn't seen a film in like a year and a bit and I'd be watching documentaries yeah. on history and I'd be listening to podcasts and I'd be listening to audiobooks. So that was already a sign yeah. where my spare time was going. And um, I always wanted to fill my life. By the end of my life, I always wanted to look back and go, I didn't, thank God, I filled my life with experiences. Mm -hmm. it, it was many different experiences. I've traveled a lot. I've filled it with different things. I've worked in jobs I never thought I'd work in that I lasted a day, but I did it, you know. I, and then I, I, oh, I started a clothing label. Oh, I did that. And But I want to be an old man looking back going, you know what? I did everything I wanted to. I filled my life with that. And it's nice to always look with fresh eyes at new things. Yeah. You know, seeing people on the side of the road doing up furniture or or gardening. You know, people are getting I noticed that when people go through breakups, they buy a lot of plants. Yeah. Because it's something they can look after. Oh, and there's life. Garden. <laughs> my, it's my, an Amazon now. My it? <laughs> garden design has gone through the roof. And I'm enjoying it. There's a psychological thing there. There's yeah. nature. It you're you're caring for something. You're nurturing something. And it's life. Yeah. So I am um, I was listening to that on the on the radio the other day yeah. about um, people turning to gardening whenever they go through a hardship. All it is is going back to nature, right? And nature's giving them, like we were saying before, it's it's 
you need to balance yourself with that. Yeah. Um, yeah, so, oh man, like next time we, we come on, uh, let's just talk about issues that are going <laughs> like we normally do. Yeah. But at least the audience gets uh, gets an intro to who you are. And yeah. um, we didn't cover half the things you've worked on, but a lot of the things you said you can't talk about because they're still in the pipeline, right? Yeah, yeah. Um, which is fine. But um, how many years now, Claire? 20, 23? 20, yeah, 22. 22 years. Wow. Yeah. That's fantastic, though. I'm very lucky. Well, I, I remember you at your first job out of uni was my film, right? Yes. <laughs> <laughs> and to think, you know, all these years later, here you are sitting here talking about, I mean, you've worked on, like, would it be in the triple digits of jobs? And like a, you've worked over over 100 different types of jobs, right? Yeah. Documentaries and commercials and TV series. Um, but I'm glad today wasn't about the film industry. It was about the things psychologically, how even though you're doing something you love, how that can still take its toll yeah. and how balanced. And I love, I love the fact we covered that because I'm thinking it, it will tell, it will give a lot to a lot of people that are listening. Yeah. Because a lot of people are listening are doing what they love and they're thinking, fuck, what's missing? <laughs> oh, how can it be? I've wanted to do this my whole life. Why am I, Why is there that little emptiness? And I think just by hearing you talk, mm. we'll suddenly go, oh, okay, maybe that's what I need. I need community. I need family. I need to go in, into the nature more. Yeah. I need to do this more. And I think it was a relevant, uh, it was a relevant point, an important point. I think we brought up today because I think a lot of people are going through it. Yeah. A lot, of, especially in today's climate. So always thank you, Claire. Love you heaps. <laughs> and I look too. forward to our next time. <laughs> and next time we'll talk about UFOs, all right? Ghosts. <laughs> ghosts. Ghosts. Yeah, that would be a good one. Dimensions. <laughs> See ya. <laughs>